This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. This is your host, Darren Hood. Thanks for taking the time to join me on today. And as always, thanks for those of you who are listening for the very first time. We appreciate you and glad that you found this podcast (laughs) worthy of your attention on today and hope that you get a lot out of it. As always, we've had a ball recently addressing some of the different Q&A elements, uh, entertaining questions that have been submitted by people through social media. And then we had the special session the last two weeks where we were talking with uh, Julia Fernandez from the students of UXD and highlighting and addressing questions that were submitted during a talk that I did for them that I didn't get to address. There were so many questions and, and we had a ball actually addressing that. I enjoyed having Julia on the show and we look forward to doing that again. And I look forward to interacting with the folks from the students of UXD. Again, I'm currently doing a series called bubble busting where we're addressing things that are, that are happening or, and assumptions expectations associated with being in UX and trying to establish a career and getting education, things of that nature, uh, just riding the ship as I like to call it and addressing different topics, covering them out there. We've, we've had two bubble busting sessions with them. The recordings are available. If you go to the students of UXD website, go into events and past events, you will find the two recordings, the two talks I've done for them thus far near future on the horizon. So at any rate, we're, we were going through the Q and a sessions and now we're shifting. We're going back to our regular format. I am, however, looking forward to bringing some guests on the show. I'm starting to talk to some folks, have them on. I, I think folks would love to hear from them to see what other people have to say. And, and I, I love the the dynamic of just going back and forth with people it actually sort of, it feels a little awkward almost today going back to doing the show by myself without some type of external input. But then again, what we're going to talk about today is not void completely of external input. We're going to shift into a new topic. And I think this is going to take two, maybe three weeks to address this and present it the way that we should today. Uh, but I want to start covering the topic of UX and the age of misinformation. We, we've got, of course, UX is booming. The UX-related positions started hitting mainstream in, in the mid to late 90s, starting out mostly as interaction designers, information architects, human-computer interaction expert, things of that nature. And... Then the the discipline continued to evolve in the sense where folks started to realize that there was more to it than just interaction design and more to it than just information architecture. And there were other things that were going on. And I want to make sure we understand, because this is an aspect of misinformation that's actually taking place today. Things were not being added onto the discipline. There were natural advances that were taking place and that people were latching onto. For example, if you're doing information architecture, I started as an information architect, and 
when you when you do information architecture, you can do the work, but you will eventually find out. You'll eventually consider, wow, this is what I think will work. I need to do some research. So the next thing you know, you're doing information architecture, but you're also starting to do research. And then you're doing different types of research. You're not necessarily creating new aspects of research. A lot of these things that were being done in research, except for things like remote usability testing, which was an advent that came up in association with uh, with technological advancements. I mean, there was not going to be a remote usability test in 1995. But as things move forward, as internet speeds got better, as, it, as different things started to take place, as SaaS or software as a service started to become more prevalent, then you started to see that things moving in that direction that became a possibility. So that's your real evolutionary type of thing where there's a complete shift and an add-on because part of misinformation in the world of UX today is that people are starting to do things that they consider to be UX, but when you look at it closely, it's not UX at all, uh, such as we'll, we'll have some dedicated time to this in the not-too-distant future, things such as design thinking. There's a lot of confusion. Matter of fact, when somebody says design thinking, you really don't know what they're talking about it, because when they say design thinking, there's like, one person over here says design thinking. They mean one thing. Five more people say design thinking. Then another five people over there. And all 11 of these people are saying 11 different things. And as a lot of people are trying to pass off design thinking as UX. There is a way to do certain things associated with design thinking that can work within UX. However, design thinking is not UX and a lot of times, matter of fact, there's a, there's a I just remembered a seeing an illustration about a week ago that that one of my peers shared with me and it was pretty hilarious because the person was trying to say this is design thinking and everything that was on the in this illustration well they were all different aspects of UX so they were basically taking UX and calling it design thinking. UX is not one thing. So when somebody took design thinking and then plastered all these different UX related methods and methodologies and then took design thinking and threw it up there, it, it does a few things. It creates a few problems. It, it causes people to think that design thinking is UX. It causes some people to think that UX is design thinking. It causes people to think that Anytime they hear design thinking that it's representative of all of those things, which is not true at all. This is the type of thing that we're, that we're battling today because you have so many people that have a passion for UX. They're looking to get into UX. They just got into it and they're trying to grow. And with information being at the center of, of a an, an attempt to grow and to mature as an individual and as a professional, you would hope that the information that's available to you, that's being provided to you is reliable, that it's trustworthy, and that it's truly going to help you develop. Well, this isn't really the case because as these types of things occur, as you, you encounter resources such as medium, and you see all the different articles that are out there and you look at them there. We have a there's a bias that we all operate 
in from time to time. And we usually, when we find out that what we saw was incorrect, we have to recover ourselves from that, from that scenario. And, and the issue is that we see articles, we see things that are posted. We see something that has been published, whether it's a book or an article or a podcast or a video on YouTube, and we automatically think that it's viable. It's interesting how our mind works, isn't it? I'm, I'm sure that other people are recognizing that you're in the same boat as me. You, you see something and you start listening to it or reading it or watching it, and you think, okay, there's nothing initially that strikes us as being, hey, this might be inaccurate. We, we don't think of it that way. And so with, with this type of happening going on, information is everywhere. And when you're eager to learn, you, we are actually more gullible, whether we like to admit it or not. We are more gullible. We are more likely to accept what's being presented as an, author, an authoritative presentation. And so we, we have this, this state of mind that we're in that we think that this is something we can accept. And so we see the medium pose. We see information flying around on Reddit. We see uh, the videos on YouTube. We see in the, in the rise of Clubhouse, somebody launches a little Clubhouse session and you want to join it. And you, you think that everybody has the best intent. Uh, and a lot of times people do have the best intent. And we need to understand that intent does not mean that the that which follows the intent is trustworthy and valid and accurate. Uh, intent is intent. It, it, it doesn't mean that what we're going to partake of is actually something that we should be uh, digesting or ingesting. Uh, we should put it that way. So we've got an issue. UX basically being a little over 20 years old as, as a mainstream career. You, know, you didn't even have college programs and they're still popping up. There's still a lot of institutions that do not have human computer interaction, interaction design or UX related programs. And a lot of, even a lot of the, the colleges and the universities, the things that are being presented in, in those institutions, let alone what's in the MOOCs on Coursera and Udemy and, and edX and places like that, just because something is presented even through a viable source does not mean that it is accurate that we are looking at. I, I, I recently I'm in the process of putting together a, a resource to provide some recommendations of places where you could go to learn about UX. I want to put together a learning resource guide, a list of recommendations, places that I've I've talked to schools that I've talked to. Uh, programs, curriculums that I've evaluated. I want to put these together and and people ask me all the time where they can go, whether it's a degree program, whether it is a MOOC, uh, something. What what do you recommend? What do you think I could do? What what have you checked out that you found to to be worthy of an investment of my time and my money? So I I actually revisited one of the schools in, in my travels. I I went to Drexel for a brief period of time. I left the school because I found them to be at the time. And this happens a lot in academia. So it happens. It happens. We roll with it. We do what we can. But 
I went to Drexel and I found them to be extremely disorganized. I had no problem with the curriculum at the time. I thought the curriculum was great. I thought that the two classes that I took while I was there were great. I thought that the teachers were great. I thought that the textbook and the materials were great. I just found that from an administrative perspective, it was a sheer and utter headache. And I left the school for that reason because I had, I had gone through something similar to that when I was a freshman um, some years prior. So I, nah, I'm out of here. And, and I left and I went to, I believe I left there and I went to Iowa State. And I won't get into that today. No information at Iowa State at the time. No information at Drexel at the time. I will say that. But I did revisit Drexel recently. And the Drexel website, here you are. Picture yourself as being someone that's interested in learning about UX. You're learning to build your acumen and you're willing to spend money. You you have the resources or you're willing to take out a student loan. So you're willing to go to a college. You're willing to go through a university program. You're looking at a master's degree in UX and you come across Drexel. So remember, when we're taking in information like this, when we're looking to build ourselves, we are very gullible. We are so hopeful that that hope actually overrides our ability to, to pick up on, to discern risk. And especially if you're trying to look up or do research on a topic that you're not an expert in, which when people are getting a degree, that's usually the case. Um, it's one of the reasons we're going to school because we, we, we don't really know anything about that topic and we're not in a position to pick up on, on, on a red flag. So if you're eager, that, and frankly, and I'm going to interject this here, this is one of the reasons why uh, myself and others like me really tell people do not go to UX boot camps because you actually get caught up in the eagerness and the zeal. And so you opt in to the extent that you really don't even care how much they're charging you. And you opt in for this exorbitant amount of money and you're really not going to get a return on investment. The fact that you or someone else very well may get a job out of what you're doing and going to the boot camp still does not mean that that boot camp is viable. And and the the pedagogy is bad, the curriculums are bad. The they they hire people who graduated a week ago to teach. That's unethical. They teach, they use information they present information in the classes that you could actually look up on Google for free. So without me getting, I don't want to get too much into the boot camp thing today, but just to share, there's a few reasons right there to not take a boot camp. You can do a whole lot more for a whole lot less than a boot camp. But back to what what I came across when I went to to this website, to this university website, they literally said. On this site, if you want to get ahead, if you want to succeed in UX, you need to be a unicorn. And I'm going, wow, who in the world did you talk to <laughs> who validated that statement? You do not need to be a unicorn. I'm here to tell you today, you don't need to be a unicorn to succeed in UX. Matter of fact, um, the only people who need that full of a skill set, uh, keeping in mind that coding is not something that's critical to being a UX professional. So the only people who actually have these positions and, and end up being asked to code or things of that nature are people that work at startups 
and people who work at, at mom and pop shops and things like that. And the reason for that is they can't afford to hire all of those people. So the more a person has in their repertoire, the more valuable they're going to be in that environment. But if you move further up on the food chain and work at a larger organization, your need to do all those things is completely negated. Here's the key, though. It's not what's required at the job that determines what the position is or what the discipline. We talk about the discipline. We're talking about the whole. We're not talking about a need based on that specific or a specific situation. The discipline does not require any knowledge of code at all. I've been doing UX in the mainstream full time for 17 years now, almost, and been doing it completely for over that about 25, 26 years. I also, I also, and I never talk about this. I did UX, what we now know as UX on a part-time basis before I had my full-time gig in the corporate environment. And in none of these instances was I ever required to code. Coding was not it per se. So let's put that in there with an asterisk because this is going to help make the point and blow some of this, blow up some of this misinformation, the these these inaccurate concepts that people have. Before I worked in UX full time, when I was doing it part time, I was doing some work for one company and I was doing some information architecture. There is no code associated with information architecture, folks. <laughs> Zero code. You just make sure that you're optimizing your your nomenclature, your labeling, your taxonomies, that's your grouping, and making sure that you're establishing strong information sets so that people can complete tasks and people can find what they're looking for. There is no code associated with that. So in that one, there was absolutely no code. I worked for another company where I came up with the idea, did some entrepreneurial work, and I came up with the idea for us to start a, a web design department or operation within the company and we were designing websites for credit unions across the United States. And so when we did this, of course, we were building websites from the ground up. We also did graphic work. So I was creating logos for credit unions. I was doing what some people call today UX writing. I've been doing that stuff since I've been doing writing in conjunction with UX and always looked at it that way my entire career. So I, I, I never have seen where somebody could just work on that all day. So I have a difficult time with this whole UX writing thing and any other position that's popping up in what we can almost call the dark ages of UX because it's the wild, wild west right now. That's what I usually call it. This is the wild, wild west of UX. And in the wild, wild west of UX, it's almost like an anything goes. So things that are popping up while people are trying to suppress the the authenticity of the discipline, you have to be aware, you have to be wary of it. So again, I've been looking and doing looking at and doing UX writing related stuff for over 20 years. And, and it's just interesting that I never considered it a different thing. It it just is something that's part of the discipline. So I can sort of see where people are coming from. I still can't get with this. You do that 20, uh, you know, uh, 40, uh, 24, I'm about to say 24 seven. You do that uh, for 40 hours a week. I, I find it very difficult to think that there's enough work 
to to allow for someone to have that position. That's my mindset today. We'll continue to take a look at it just to make sure what's going on. But today, I, I, I stand against it, and, and that's why. But when I did that, because I was building the, the websites from the ground up, I was doing code, but that was not part of the UX. That was part of the, as what we call it today, developer work, engineering work. It wasn't part of the UX. It was helping bring the UX to life. So coding is not a part of UX. And some people will say, well, shouldn't you learn how to code? We'll blow up this misinformation as well. Think of it as we're doing bubble busters here as well. Not not just for students of UXD, but we're doing it here. When you are doing UX, some people think that it helps for you to learn how to code so that you can interact with people whose responsibility it is to do the code. Um, and I have an alternative for that. I, I have interacted with people throughout my career, and I know other people who have the same testimony as me. And you interact with people, you you are collaborating with people, you're cross-pollinating, you're, you're dialoguing, you're engaging in these multidisciplinary teams. And coding does not help you talk to the person who does the coding. Being a respectful professional, being a human being is what helps you to interact. So I've never had an issue engaging with somebody, not just with coding. How do you talk to the QA people? Do you need to learn QA to talk to the QA people? Or do you need to trust them and just engage with them and and exercise mutual professional respect? So mutual professional respect takes care of that. I don't need to learn how to code. I don't need to learn QA. I don't need to learn project management. I don't need to learn all these other disciplines and all these people that are represented in our meetings. That's not, that, that, that somebody must have posted an article somewhere and then folks heard it, liked it. Uh, but when you get in the trenches, you will find out that it's not necessary to be able to speak the same exact language you can actually learn how to interact and engage. So let's blow that away today. So just a lot of, it's interesting that 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 institution made that statement and made that suggestion. No, you don't need to be a unicorn. And that same institution also said you need to be able to learn how to code. So they put code into the curriculum and they require you to do it. It's not, it's not helping you at all. And, and people who are, who are for that are also, they're doing it from a position of bias, which is interesting because UX is a discipline that calls for the identification, the suppression, and the management of bias on the part of yourself, as well as on the part of those who you are going to be engaging with. You have to, when you're conducting a a remote usability testing or any type of research. You have to make sure that you don't invoke or trigger bias. When you're working with your stakeholders, you have to make sure that you manage bias. When you're putting together your own recommendations, you have to make sure that they're void of bias. So it's really important that we make sure not to bring bias into our recommendations. And when someone says you need to learn how to code, the people who are the most adamant are former developers. Well, you just introduced a bias. <laughs> and so now you have this little time bomb in the midst of what you're prescribing. We need to make sure that those things are not a part 
of what we do. So, folks, we want to spend some time in this series. It could possibly extend to four weeks as well because there's a lot to be said and there's a lot to be rooted up. There's a lot to help protect people about. But we are surrounded today with issues of misinformation. It's, it's critical for us to learn how to develop a filter. And when you first get engaged in UX, you don't have one. You, you don't know what to approve, what not to approve. And so if you don't have that filter, I would hope and think that everybody has some degree or some level of skill with critical thinking because that's your out. That's what you're going to need to exercise. That's what you're going to need to develop because nobody wants to be exposed to something only to find out that it was incorrect. And the longer you practice that thing that's incorrect, the longer you embrace it, the more you you actually invoke risk in conjunction with the work that you're doing. We're going to address different aspects of misinformation, what we can do to overcome it. I'm going to share some examples with you over the course of this series. And my hope would be that people would take these things in and then let's band together and let's overcome this because it's it's in this developmental stage that UX is still in, misinformation is one of our biggest problems. And if UXers continue to embrace misinformation, then trying to achieve victory and to excel at what we do and to optimize the perception of value in what we bring to the table becomes that much more difficult. Everybody got it? All right, we will end here and we will pick up again at this point next week. So until next time, uh, this is your host of the World of UX. This is Darren Hood. Happy UXing, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.